You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning again. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Ashley Hobley. If we haven't met yet, I am on staff here. I have been around a long time. Um, And here, um, if you haven't heard before, we team teach. And so we get the opportunity for some just different voices up here every once in a while. I have the privilege of getting to um, speak up here maybe about once a semester or something. And I picked today. Nick, let me pick something that I was interested in, and I love the book of Esther, so I'm really excited to dig in and engage in it. But I also really love puzzles, specifically seek and finds. So I'm curious if you would just like take some time with me to do a little bit of a seek and find this morning, if that's okay. It's on theme. It's Esther. Okay, so there are 12 differences between these two pictures. I'm curious if you're able to like find some of them. I love doing this kinds of stuff. It's more, this is like the most exciting thing to do when I play with my kids is do like these games versus like play pretend. The mustache, yeah, they're good. I feel like I wanna give you like a lot of time, but they're, I also don't understand where everybody can maybe see that for a second. I don't know if you'll be frustrated, but we could put the answers up there already if you got these. These are the differences I found, but I think that there might be 13, and I only found 12, so I could maybe be missing them. I also love uh, Seek and Find's, like, Where's Waldo, if you guys have done those before. Can anybody find him? Again, I feel like I don't want my head to be... Anybody see him? No one yet? Come on, guys. This one. Do you see him, Eleanor? Where's Waldo? There he is. Right there. Do you see him? Right there. All right. Let's try this one. No, we're actually not going to try that one. That, if you guys couldn't get that other one, you're not getting this one. But has life ever kind of felt like this? I'm sure, like, I'm sure you're getting ready for finals, and things are getting stressful, and I'm sure your life kind of does feel like that a little bit right now. Um, you can go to the tile slide. That's okay. Thanks, pal. Um, has looking for God in your life specifically, so not just life, but looking for God in your life ever kind of felt like that crazy where's Waldo puzzle? Have you ever felt like that picture where there's kind of just too many things going on in life to even look for God? Has he ever felt silent to you or maybe far away? Or maybe he like feels personally close but far away from a particular situation or circumstance or challenge in your life, something that you're wanting an answer on or insight into? Or maybe you feel like, oh, I can very clearly see God in your life and maybe in everybody's life around you, but you're like, just, you can't see him in yours. Or maybe um, you feel like, I can't see God, or I feel like he's silent because he's punishing me. And if I was a better Christian, 
I'd be like, have this super connection, and we'd be close all the time, and I'd be confident in everything that I did, and just like, praise Jesus. I, I would never feel bad or far. Sometimes it really does feel like God is not actively working in our lives, like he's kind of just hanging out somewhere else. And unlike the stories that we read in the Bible, we don't have a narrator that's like walking us through and telling us like what God's doing and where he's showing up. If you guys are like me, sometimes I, I really do truly believe that God cares, but I can wonder if he's doing anything or if he is, what is it? This idea is super significant for us looking at Esther this morning. Okay, so where are we in the Bible? Um, is, we're, we're in this series right now where we're talking about one book, and there's three books that we're going to talk about. The first one was Esther. This is literally just a, a screenshot of the table of contents in my Bible. So Esther, we're in the Old Testament. Esther is about in the middle uh, of the books of the Old Testament. Um, there are about 13 books that I have stars on them in my table of contents that directly advance the storyline of the, of the Old Testament, um, specifically the, the history of the Israelites. And then there's some other books kind of around there that they add a lot of depth and perspective to those books. So they're important, but they don't necessarily drive the main, the main plot forward. And then there's like a ton of prophets. Those are all the little piece um, that are talking to just different situations, usually after Israel is divided into two kingdoms and there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of ignoring God. But that's where we are in the Bible. Where we are in time, though, or in the story or in the history or the meta narrative, is here. Okay, so while the, the books of the Old Testament are not in chronological order, this is sort of the chronology of like this is, this is the main storyline. You can see we're kind of all the way at the end here. So we were actually after the exile of Israel. And that could either mean something to you or not mean something to you. But the Israelites, like, on this timeline in the Old Testament, how they've been established, they've thrived, they've fought, they've split, they've been destroyed, they've been exiled out to surrounding kingdoms, and then they're kind of coming back together is where our story takes place today. So we're after Israel's exile from Jerusalem. It's called a diaspora story, okay? So diaspora just means scattered seed, okay? So this, this story takes place when the Israelites are scattered. They're scattered from home. Judah, the kingdom of Judah, has been captured by Babylon. Babylon has been captured by Persia, and we are in Persia. The Persian Empire at this point, because it just dominated the world, the, the biggest world power. Now it is the biggest world power at the time. Some of the uh, Jewish people have gone back to Jerusalem, have started to rebuild, and some have stayed where they were as they're scattered about. The, Jew, the Jewish people in this story have assimilated by choice into the Persian kingdom. They're, they're, for whatever reason, they're kind of staying where they are as opposed to going back to Jerusalem. All right, so that's where we are in the Bible. That's where we are in time. This is a story. Esther is a story. Side note, maybe it makes sense to you. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I get it. I, was, I used to be an English teacher, so that's why I feel like I, I just love this. I love this. Yes, uh, history, yeah, go comments. Um, Esther is a history that is told as a story. 
okay? But it is, it is brilliantly and dramatically told. This is a real thing that happened. There are artifacts from the empire from this time, but it is still a story, and it's told so well in this book. It has action and suspense and, like, crazy irony, and it is the most movie-like or fairy tale like story. It's up there uh, from the Bible. And it's meant to be read in one sitting so that you get that, so you get that full experience. And I'm hoping for those of you that were in small groups this week, you got to sit down and read the whole thing at one time. I hope that was like cool and a blessing to you to kind of get to see some of that stuff. I hope that was a good experience. The other thing that we need to know about Esther is it is a pretty unique book of the Bible in a couple of ways. One, it never mentions God. You might have talked about that already or noticed that yourself if you've read it. It also never explicitly talks about anything to do with God, kind of. Like there's no prayer explicitly stated in there or worshiping God explicitly stated in there. The other unique thing, it's not the only book like this, but it's unique in that it doesn't, it's not set in um, Israel or Judah, but it's set in Susa, which is, again, I already talked about that. The ca- it's in Persia. It's the capital of Persia. So that's kind of saying, like, it's not, um, this, if this is your life, this is not a story that's happening at church. It's not happening in your small group. This story would be happening in your dorm. It would be happening in your class. It would be happening at work in your job. Again, I mentioned it was meant to be read in one sitting, not only because it's good, but because the story is set up that way. So this is a book that is written based on parallels. And you might have seen this as you studied it before. It's, it's set up and based on coincidences and reversals. And so you've got to kind of read the whole thing to get the coincidences and to get the reversals. You guys might have seen um, out on the coffee table. If you didn't, that's fine. Um, there's this chart. If you want to go back and study Esther, I have found this as just a helpful way to go and track all those coincidences and reversals. So for further study, if you want to pick that up, help yourself. I think I kind of like doing that. That's kind of fun. But anyway, um, so coincidences. Somehow in this story, in this history, the exact right thing happens at the exact right time. And reversals. Things happen in the story, and you kind of get to like the middle of it, and then the story kind of like, if you fold it over itself at that point, things start to unhappen in a way. I think it's helpful to look at the visual layout of the book to get what I'm saying. So the, the technical word for this is called a chiastic structure, but let's think about it in terms of reversal. So here's what we have going on. The first half of the book. Now, it's a lot, and we're covering a book, so I'm going to go through it. I love it. There's so many details that are so cool. That's why I wanted you guys to read it. I'm going to go through it as quick as possible so that we're not here for infinity hours. But first couple chapters are all about the greatness of Persia. There's banquets. There's excess. There's a party that lasts 180 days and then to start another party. Like, it's, it's a little crazy. There's wealth and there's um, extravagance. And it's the power and might of Persia is highlighted in the first couple books. And in that crazy extravagance time, the king makes this request and it involves the queen and her coming, and she doesn't come. And so he's like, you're fired, essentially. We don't know what happens to her, but she's out. Some stuff happens, and there's a, they need to pick a new queen. And so they have this beauty pageant. And surprise, Esther gets picked. 
coincidence, Esther gets picked um, to be the next queen. So that happens. And then in chapter three, we have this Jafar from Aladdin-like character that enters. He's like the evil advisor, and he has all these plans, and he wants to overthrow things. And um, he's just really... um, (laughs) he's really obsessed with some honor that's given to him. Can kind of relate, but he goes a little crazy with it. He he wants everybody to bow to him. He's kind of second in command of the king at this point. There's this guy named Mordecai who happens to be Jewish, um, and he refuses to bow to him. So that really makes him mad. Um, He might have some issues because what Haman does, instead of just being upset about that or addressing that kind of calmly, Haman decides, I hate that guy so much because he won't bow to me that I'm going to annihilate his entire group of people, like his entire ethnicity. So that's when we get into chapter 3, where Haman's like, hey, king, you're kind of drunk and kind of weak, and what do you think about this? What if I just kind of like genocide these people? And the king's like, oh, yeah, sure, but like if you write it, I'll just sign it go for it. Um, So that's what Haman does. The Jewish people get this decree um, that they are about to be killed, and on a specific date, they get, it's so crazy, the story's so crazy, they get to like save the date of like, hey, just so you know, we're going to kill you on this day. Mark your calendar, take care of business. I don't, I don't know. It's all, it's weird. Um, and so they're, they're mourning, and they're fasting, and they're terrified. And the, the fast kind of implies that they're, like, praying and looking to God, but it's not explicitly stated in there. Um, so then we get to chapter 4, and the big reveal here is that Esther, in fact, herself is um, of Jewish descendants. Um, so Mordecai, who is Esther's relation, like, it kind of, I feel like they kind of say uh, niece, I don't know exactly, but um, she's the the people in the palace are telling her like, "Hey, your your uncle or whoever Mordecai um, is really sad and weeping," and she's like, "Oh, that's weird. Okay, let's send him some clothes." So she does that, and he's like, "What are you doing? This is what's happening. Don't you know what's going on outside of the palace? There's this decree." They kind of have this interaction about this where Mordecai invites her to like go to the king. And plead that this not happen. This is so crazy. Would this not happen? So she uh, agrees to do that. And she has a banquet that she asks. Or she, in her mind, her plan is to invite the king and to Haman to a banquet to ask this. She has this moment where she goes to the king, even though she's not supposed to. But it all works out okay. They have this banquet. Um, it's great. Haman is feeling honored. He's feeling loved because he's at, in this special place with the king and queen. He goes home drunk and decides, hey, I ju- it is not enough to wipe out uh, Mordecai's entire uh, group of people. I'm going to also personally kill him on this giant pole. So in the, his family's like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's a good plan. You should do that. So in the morning, he starts building this pole right outside the palace. Little did he know the king that night could not sleep. He had insomnia, and he said, you know, it would put me to sleep or just would be helpful is if you guys read to me all the great things about me. So they're reading all these great things to him about himself, and they come across, oh, this guy Mordecai um, actually saved your life. Did you remember that? And he's like, wait, what? He uncovered this assassination attempt. This is kind of crazy. Okay, I think I should honor him because that's sort of a big deal. 
coincidence. Um, and so in the morning, he's like, how should I honor him? How should I honor him? How should I honor him? He sees Haman down there building his pole to kill Mordecai on. Um, and he's like, hey, Haman, come over here. How do you think I should honor somebody that I like, really want to honor? And Haman, thinking that it's him, is like, oh, you should do this and that. And there's a parade and there's horses. And like, this is going to be awesome. And the ultimate reversal happens here where uh, the king says, oh, actually, it was not, not you that I'm honoring. It's Mordecai, this, like, arch enemy. Okay, so then this is the worst time for the slides to go out. <laughs> um, then the story kind of flips, and everything starts reversing. Uh, chapter 6, we have Haman carries out the plan to honor Mordecai. Uh, reversing what he thought was going to be the honor for himself. Then chapter 7, we go to that. Esther has a second banquet with the king and with Haman, and that's when she does the big reveal that she is Jewish and that Haman is the one that's been behind the plan to kill all of her people. The king gets really upset about that. The king is really crazy and confusing in this book and actually has Haman impaled on the pole that he built for Mordecai to get killed on. So you got a reversal there. The next reversal that we see is kind of the same thing where Esther and Mordecai plan to reverse the decree um, and they, they make a plan to be like, okay, we, how are we going to save our people now? The king is sort of like, yeah, that, I can't like really contradict my own decree or can't like redact that. So I'm not sure what you guys are going to do, but I'm sure you guys will figure it out. So Esther and Mordecai figure out that if they make it so that the the Israelites can defend themselves against the attack, that might kind of squash things. That plan works. Mordecai's decree goes out. They end up saving the Jewish people. This is a huge deal. This is big news. There is celebration here. So they go from mourning and fasting to rejoicing and feasting. Uh, the next reversal that happens is instead of Haman being honored and in, in that place of, of second to the king, it's now Mordecai that is being honored, and he's given um, that significant place uh, sort of in the king's court. And then the last reversal comes through in the, the last chapters of 9 and 10, where, we, where in the beginning it was the king's request that happens. This time it's the queen's request. A little sus here. But Esther is like, hey, instead of just saving people, instead of that being the win, can we also go back and kill all of Haman's family? Um, there's some weird stuff with that. And then it ends with the greatness of the Jewish people and the celebration of Mordecai, kind of opposite of Persia. So much so that, in fact, it says in there that people were converting to become Jews because of the greatness and the, the things that were going on of this great deliverance, or even pretending to convert because they were kind of scared not to. Interesting. All very fascinating. So that is the book. There's so much more to get into with that. But you can see where it's this book of reversing. So it kind of, with all these reversals, it begs the question of why are the reversals happening and who's doing the reversing? I could talk a lot about all the different parts of this book, but for our time today, I think it is super helpful to just zoom in on one particular passage of the book. Because while the book is interesting and cool, I really, I feel like I want to share with you the part that 
connects to me and my own spiritual life the most. I want to zoom in on chapter 4. Maybe this is unsurprising. Chapter 4 contains some of the most famous lines in the book. Um, it's a pivotal time in the book. It's not the climax. I feel like the climax of this, of this story is probably like, are the, is the genocide going to happen or not? And how is that going to get averted? But this is a conversation that comes way before that. It's a conversation with Esther and with Mordecai, and it's kind of the inciting incident, if you will. It's the, it's the place where Esther chooses that she is going to engage in what's going on or not. It kind of helps the rest of the story unfold. Propels the rest of the story forward, and honestly, like I said, is the most relatable part of the passage to me. So we're in chapter 4. Um, the very beginning of chapter 4 is that uh, kind of conversation through letter that's going back and forth from Mordecai, who's outside of the palace, and Esther, who's inside the palace, where she's sending him the clothes and being like, hey, why are you mourning? Here's some, here's some things. Here's some clothes. And she's addressing the circumstances of Mordecai's distress, but not the problem of it. And he kind of sends back, like, no, don't you know what's going on? He sends her back through sort of a messenger what the situation is. He sends her back a copy of the edict. And he's like, please go to the king and beg for this not to happen. So we're going to pick up uh, in chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, Hathak, which is the like the eunuch, the messenger that's kind of going between them, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then he or she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all of the king's officials and the people of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is a key moment because this is when Esther engages with what is going on in the story. This is the spot where God is most directly referenced without actually being talked about or, or mentioned specifically. Right? Who knows? Who knows? God knows. God knows. Who knows? Deliverance is, if you don't do it, deliverance is going to come from somebody else. How can he believe that? Because God is God. Fast for me, I feel like there's a reference of God. Pray for me. Pray on my behalf. They're engaging not just with the situation, 
They're not putting on their problem-solving pants. They're, put, they're engaging with God in what he is doing in the situation. That's why this is key. This is where Esther decides that she is going to engage with what she thinks God might be doing in her life, where she decides to listen to and obey what God is seemingly asking her to participate in. This is the moment here. I don't actually know how long this took to happen. It feels very condensed in the story. But this is where Esther is encouraged to look at her life and look for God within it instead of just being preoccupied by her circumstances. Which, to be fair to her, has probably had a lot of drama and trauma. I mean, the whole, like, beauty pageant, one night with the king thing. Like, I I can't, I almost can't blame her for sticking to circumstances that are seemingly stable or safer for her. But God has something bigger for her life than just the absence of discomfort or personal pain. This is the key moment because she chooses to consider that this might be a kairos moment, a moment where God is breaking through into her life for her to engage with something, with him and with the situation around her. A call for like a deeper and a wider spiritual reality than what she's maybe seen. It's as if Mordecai is saying, what if God has been working in your life in all these ways to set you up for the purposes that he has for you? What if God has set you up in this time at this place for your best and also for the good of those around you. Mordecai even acknowledges that God is sovereign. Like his plans are going to happen regardless of what Esther does, but Esther is being invited to participate in God's plan. And it affects her own spiritual discipleship and her own spiritual growth. To be clear, God works out his purposes in our world, through all the mess, and he saves people. This is what we call the providence of God. He is going to do what he is going to do. No power on earth can hinder God's rule or keep his ultimate purpose from being fulfilled. We can trust him to work out his purposes for us, for our church, for our world. That is hard to do most of the time. I was going to say sometimes, most of the time. But he, we can trust him because he'll do it. The providence of God. This points to the greatest deliverance. This deliverance in this book is pretty crazy. This points to an even better and an even bigger and even crazier deli- deliverance, an even crazier reversal called the cross and the resurrection. God's providence is at work for his purposes in our individual lives and corporately for his kingdom at the same time. His reign is sovereign over all of life and humanity, and yet he also like cares for me. He cares for you. He cares for each individual within that. I can't even begin to comprehend that. God wants to bring relationship and healing and purpose and value and redemption and like really tender care and really big significance to us individually. He, does, he wants that for you. And he's inviting you and he's inviting me to participate in his work. 
To be clear, Esther and Mordecai are not the main characters of this story, and they are certainly not the heroes, okay? They're super flawed. They're morally pretty sketchy. God is the main character, even though his name never shows up in the whole book. And I alluded to this before, but I love this book because that feels like real life to me. My life does not have a narrator that's like, and then God did this, and then these people did this, and Ashley then did this. I don't have that. My life is also not a biography where I'm like looking back on it to see things and make sense. I'm living it out day by day. So it feels real to me. This book compels me to continually to look for God as I go about my days, to look at all the stuff that we have learned about God despite his His. Uh, absence in it. I'm going to have, like, there's a list. It's probably not even exhaustive, um, but there's a list of, of ways that we see God in this book, things that we learn about him with him never being mentioned or with never actually being said or written out in black and white. God is there and he is active. He is a saving God. He has very specific plans. Nothing aimlessly happens in this book. God has perfect timing. He is never late. The insomnia, the banquets. God is stronger than human intentions and plans. God redeems. God does miracles. Esther getting chosen. The the people getting saved. Miracles. God doing miracles in this book, and he's doing miracles in our lives. He, he is. God is always thinking of us individually and the kingdom simultaneously. God gives us personal choices. We see that probably most clearly with Esther. But his greater will will still be done. God can reverse destinies. We see this most clearly with Jesus, actually. All of these things happen in the book. All of these things are happening in the background of the book. The background parts might just be the most important parts. And they're still, like, these aren't just like, oh, these are neat things in this story. These are things that are true of God outside of time and space. They are things that are true in this book, and they're things that are true now. I feel like we could almost just look at this list and praise God and worship and kind of be done. Like, I don't know if we could almost not learn a lesson (laughs) from this. It's just, that's true. And it's all happening in the background, which is just crazy, or at the very least, interesting. I hope it's interesting to you. We would miss all of this stuff in this story and in our lives if we weren't looking I'm so curious, which of these truths about God do you need to hear today? Do you need to like, no, like not just like look at that and nod and be like, yes, that one's nice. I think that one kind of applies to me. But like, no, like which of these truths do you need? Like in your bones, in your soul, in the deepest part of you, what of these things do you need to know today? Where do you need to see God And will you miss it? Will you miss that one and all the other things if you're not looking for them? 
Where is God? He doesn't seem to be at work in my situation. He doesn't feel obvious. I miss so much of those things and more about God because I'm just not looking for them or I'm not persevering in looking for them. I'm distracted by something else, usually my circumstances, usually how I'm feeling about my circumstances, and I miss what God has for me. I miss the very encouragement that I'm wanting, that I'm looking for. I'm missing the feeling from the Lord that I'm longing for or I'm even lamenting about because I'm not taking the time to look for him in that thing or I don't have the perseverance to keep looking and keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. I kind of do this with God. I don't know if you guys do this where I'm like, I kind of save face for him a little bit. Like, well, I'm not going to look there. or I'm not going to ask that because like, what if he doesn't show up or something? Then it would be like, God's disappointing. And I know he's not disappointing, so I just won't ask or I won't look. Um, what if I don't see him? What if it takes way too long? What if the answer that he gives back is not what I want him to say? So many of my fears in not looking for God in these little things or in these big things are about really trying to protect myself. Uh, It's embarrassing. I still do that. Um, But it's true. And I, I wonder if you can relate. I wonder if there's a place where you desperately need God right now. And, and you either know it, you like, I know I need God right now. Or you don't even know that you desperately need God. But I, I'm wondering if there is a place where you desperately need God, but you are not looking for him. Where you're scared to look for him there. Or you just don't want to because of what it might require of you. Or you're just exhausted by looking there. Uh, even this week, for me, God is not a God of coincidences. um, It's been a week of continually looking for God in a spot that I feel like I need perseverance. I'm not hearing. I feel feel silent. I feel alone. Where are you? Where are you? What do you want to say? What do you want to say? I feel like the Where's Waldo puzzle is happening this week. But are we, are we going to keep asking? Or are we going to give up? Here's the reality. Guys, um, I, I feel like I wanted, I asked to talk about this because I love the book, but I, I, I love like rallying us to keep looking for God, not because like it's a good academic point from this book, because like it's, it's just, it's so important. It's so true to your life. And, like, if there's one thing that, um, as I, I just love you guys, and that I would care for you is that you keep looking for God. Don't give up. Or start, you know, wherever you're at. It's everything. It's everything. And avoiding looking for God somewhere does not mean that he is not there. Look again. Keep looking. Look again. Keep looking. Look again at Esther even. Like, she can't avoid the issue of choice in this story. That's why this is so powerful. She can't, she cannot say this doesn't affect me. 
She can choose to ignore it or she can engage in what's going on, but she is Jewish. She is affected by what's going on in the story. She is affected whether she is engaging with it or she's not engaging with it. She literally has a death sentence over her head that will affect her one way or another. And like our own spiritual reality, she is sentenced to death whether she isn't going to engage in the situation or ignore it. So she can engage in it. She can accept the invitation from the Lord to enter into his plan for her, but also for his greater plan for delivering his people for being part of the place and the time that she was born and given situations and circumstances. She is not a coincidence in that time and place, and you are not a coincidence in your life, in the time and place that you're at right now. Gosh, this reminds me so much of Jesus. We can ignore him in different areas of our life. I can ignore him in different areas of our life, but that does not mean that he is not there It doesn't mean that he isn't purposeful. It doesn't mean that he's not working. It doesn't mean that he's not powerful. But what's the cost? It does mean, it doesn't mean he's not, I can ignore him. It doesn't mean he's not there. What it does mean is that we miss out on relationship with him. That we miss out on intimacy with him. Maybe you're like, oh, it's, it's kind of a weird anyway, so maybe I'm okay missing out on that. But it, means out, it also means that you're missing out on living out the purpose and the identity with which you were created for. He created you and he made you and he designed your life to be where you are and who you are. And if we ignore him, then you're missing out on that. Will you guys continue to look with me? Ugh, this is like some of why we need the church because it gets hard sometimes. We can be, have every intention to look and we can't, or maybe it's like just hard to see him or maybe we keep forgetting to look and we need people around us to help us, remind, rem, remind us to keep looking. So we need each other. Will we be the church? Will we be a community of people on campus here that keep looking for God in their lives? All of it. Not just at church and not just in your small group community, but like all of your life, particularly where God might not seem obvious. Can we be a community corporately and of individuals where we are looking for God everywhere in our career, where we work, the location, the company, where we work, how we work, for who we work. Can we look for God in our romantic relationships? Who we date, how we date, what we're looking for when we're dating or marriage. Our sexuality, who, where, how we are sexual people. Our studies, our hobbies, our leisure time, our entertainment. Where, how, with who. Will we look for him in these things 
when he does not explicitly seem there. But we see him in the coincidences of things that happen and choose to do what is right and to trust God and to keep going and to keep persevering in looking instead of falling back to our own self-interest. That we would not go on our hearts <laughs> um, that maybe seem best to us or seem easier for us. Will you continually look for God with me? Will you be part of a community that does that corporately and individually in each thing? Why? Just because it's not a to-do list. Why do we want to look for God? Because we get to participate in what he has for our lives. And I have not lived very long, but I have lived long enough to know that, oh, and I can fight it. What God has for me is better than what I have for myself. It just is. I'm sure you guys have those stories too. We'll miss it if we don't look for it. We'll miss it if, we're, if we are planning and just asking him to kind of okay it or just planning and forgetting about it. We'll miss it. We don't have the insight and the perspective that God has. So can we look so that we can participate in the life that God has designed for you and so that we can participate in the kingdom mission that he has for you and for us together? We actually just pray that with me um, here as we close. <clears throat>